Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Joseph James D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. National campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. Margaret Wardlow was 13 years old in November of 1977 when she was awoken in the middle of the night by a masked man standing over her bed, shining a flashlight in her face. That masked man tied up Margaret with her own shoelaces and tied up Margaret's mother to ensure she would not come to the aid of her young daughter. He then sexually assaulted Margaret. She became East Area Rapist Victim Number 27. Debbie Domingo was 15 years old in July of 1981 when the Golden State Killer murdered her mother Sherry and Sherry's boyfriend Greg Sanchez in their Santa Barbara home. Debbie was not home at the time of the murders, but remembers the phone call the next day from her mother's best friend urging Debbie to come home immediately. Law enforcement spent 42 years hunting for the man who had attacked Margaret, killed Sherry and Greg, sexually assaulted dozens more, and murdered 11 others, a serial predator they called the Golden State Killer. Last Wednesday at 8.15 in the evening, I received an email from the daughter of Sherry Domingo, who was murdered in Southern California. Her name is Debbie. She was 15 at the time. She emailed, Hi, Anne-Marie. I thought the editing for the recent documentary was brilliant. She quoted from the show, Quote, this case will be solved because of sheer persistence. She went on to say, I have those words posted in a few places in my home and my workplace, so I can see them at various times throughout the day. Thank you for that persistence. I have faith. And on April 25th, 2018, Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, along with law enforcement from all connected jurisdictions in California, revealed that their persistence and dedication had come to fruition. They publicly announced that they had made an identification and arrest in the case of the Golden State Killer. Suspect Joseph James D'Angelo had been taken into custody the previous day. Coming up, Margaret Wardlow and Debbie Domingo share their personal stories and express what it means to finally have some answers in this tragic case. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, 
Bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We have with us right now the daughter of Sherry Domingo, who together with Greg Sanchez was brutally murdered in July of 1981 by the Golden State Killer. Please welcome Debbie Domingo. So nice to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Debbie, this has been quite the journey for you. Um, Obviously, from the tragic way that you lost your mom at age 15, going through personal ups and downs and becoming a voice for this case long before an arrest was ever made. Um, What was the hardest part in these last few years before the arrest? It's all been hard. I mean, there have been times where I've had lots and lots of hope, lots of encouragement, seeing that law enforcement was doing their best to breathe new life into the investigation. Uh, gave me a lot of hope. But the the hardest part really is just going on day to day without my mom. Yeah. And there, there's been a few times over the years where it seemed like there was momentum in the case and we were going to get somewhere. And then to have those hopes dashed must have been really hard as well. Yeah, it's been kind of a crazy little roller coaster. And, you know, honestly, I mean, I've told this story before that, you know, from the time my mom and Greg were killed, Within the first year or so, I pretty much had resigned myself to the fact in my mind that it was never going to be solved. And I spent about 20 years just in that decided hopelessness of never knowing an answer. And then once pieces started being put together and I started getting information that that there was a possibility that my mom and Greg's case was linked to all these others, it really did spark hope. And for me, it's been a gradual progressive kind of a snowball effect ever since the early 2000s. It's just grown and grown and grown as far as as far as the hope goes. Was there a deciding moment when you said, I need to be a voice for this case? Because there were a few of you who really came out and were public about this and, you know, helped keep this story out in the media and and put a face to it and gave it meaning and heart and soul. Was there a moment when you said, I need to do that? That's kind of a complicated answer. Early on, uh, let me think, I say early on, probably the mid-2000s, probably, I decided that I wanted to be active as far as the, like the pro boards and the discussion that was out there. And so I made it clear that I was the daughter of Sherry Domingo and that, you know, that I was open to questions, that I was hoping that, you know, maybe people would ask me things that might somehow be helpful towards solving the case. So, so that was kind of a decisive part of my life there where I decided that I wanted to be part of what was going on. But I really didn't consider, you know, speaking out publicly until I was prompted by Michelle Cruz. (laughs) And I was actually just looking through my notes and I came across the very first personal message that, that she sent to me that said, Hey, my name's Michelle and I'm Janelle Cruz's sister. And she said, maybe we could get to know each other. Maybe we have, common information that might help solve the case. And so from that point on, I started getting to know Michelle and seeing what she was doing as far as YouTube videos and, you know, becoming active on Facebook and Twitter and those kinds of things. And I thought, well, shoot, if Michelle can do it, I can do it. (laughs) So I just followed her lead. She set a great example. Now, Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert mentioned your email in her press conference. Can you tell us a story, (laughs) which, by the way, we loved. Um, Can you tell us the story about what she said that inspired you to write? And what did it feel like to hear her mention it at the press conference? 
I watched something that, that she was speaking on, and it seems to me like her quote, I wrote it down, and I copied it on like 15 different little sticky notes, and I stuck it up all over the place. I, I put one on my bathroom mirror. I put one on my bulletin board next to my desk at work. And her quote was something to the effect of, this case will be solved by sheer persistence. And those words just, she was so resolute. She was so determined that we were going to solve it. And I don't know, I got that feeling from her. I got it every time I talked to Investigator Holes, every time I talked to Erica Hutchcraft, every time I talked to anybody regarding this case the last couple of years, they all said, we're going to solve it. We're going to find him. The truth is going to come out. And it wasn't like they were making promises, like empty promises, just to kind of, you know, keep me at bay. I really felt like they were confident that they were going to do it. And um, anyway, when she said that, I, that quote just really stuck with me. And I don't know why the timing was as it was, but I just felt moved to just touch base with her. And I try to with, with, with all of the investigators. I try and just you know, shoot an email every once in a while that says, hey, thank you for what you're doing or what you've done, or you know, thank you for being in our corner. And so the, I just happened to just kind of out of the blue, I thought I was looking at that sticky note and I thought I need to tell Anne-Marie that, that her words meant something to me. So I shot her that little email and then the, the timing just worked out that she uh, were watching the press conference that day and I had no idea that she was going to mention my name let alone read part of my email. So that was, <laughs> that was kind of funny. Yeah, no, it was amazing. Um, she actually did say that on our show. And when she gave us the interview, well, I mean, like a year and a half, you know, before an arrest was ever made, I agree with you that quote, she was so confident and resolute and I guess more determined and confident to, to never yeah. give up. And yeah. um yeah, I remember the moment she said it, it stuck out to me, too. And we decided then and there, OK, that's the last words anyone will ever say on this show. And then nine days later, you know, they have the press conference that they've made an arrest. So it was uh, it was pretty amazing. Where were you and how did you find out about the arrest? <laughs> My story about the arrest is kind of crazy. You guys got a minute? Oh, <laughs> sure. <yeah. laughs> so funny. I For the last probably two years, at least, at least since 2016 with the, with that FBI press conference, my general routine, I go to work, I come home, I grab a, a little something to eat, usually a bowl of cereal. And then I plop down in the recliner with the laptop and I'm always online researching the case, talking to people on the pro boards, you know, watching videos, reading blogs, as anything I could find that had to do with the case and corresponding with other survivors and with, you know, the retired detectives and anybody I could think of. So the, the night of the arrest, I was in my recliner and my normal bedtime is 8.30 because I get up for work at 4 a.m. So I'm looking at my watch and it's 8.30 and I'm thinking, yeah, I should go to bed, but I was reading something. Well, I started seeing these messages pop up in various places and people kept saying, Hey, I heard there's big news from Sacramento. What's going on? And I didn't know anything. And then pretty soon somebody sent me a, a direct message and said, Hey, I heard there was a rest. Is it true? And I'm like, I don't know. What are you asking me for? You know? And then a few minutes later, somebody else started sending, sending me messages saying, saying, I heard they got him. Are you excited? And I'm like, I didn't hear anything. I don't know what you're talking about. 
but it piqued my interest enough that I, I kept typing and kept kind of, you know, jumping from page to page, trying to see if I could come up with any, anything that was really newsworthy. And I ended up staying up way past my bedtime <laughs> and about, I don't know, 11 or 1130, something like that. My phone rang and it was Margaret Wardlow. <laughs> and she said, she's all excited. She sounded like an excited teenager. Just, she says, Debbie, Debbie, did you hear? And I said, what? She said, I got him. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, this guy called me and he's a retired sheriff and he said this and he said that. And I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but the East Area Rapist is, is in jail right now tonight in Sacramento. And I said, Margaret, I said, that doesn't sound like a reliable source to me. I said, <laughs> I said why, don't we, why don't we slow down a little bit? Are you sure about this? And she said, she said, oh, yeah, they got him. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And I said, wow. And so I said, um, I can't remember what I asked her, something about, you know, how well do you know this source? And she says, oh, no, I don't, I've never even met him before. And I was like, okay, that settles it for me. I'm going to relax a little bit. And then she <laughs> says, well, who, who should I call next? And I'm like, Margaret, I'm not calling anybody. I don't know who you're going to call. <laughs> so, so Margaret hangs up. And by this time, I'm like, okay, something's going on. So I did a little more fishing online. And not too long after that, my phone rang again. And when I looked at it, it said Anne-Marie Schubert from her cell phone. So I took a deep breath Yeah, <laughs> and I answered that call. Yeah. And she said, hi, Debbie, it's Anne-Marie. And I said, hi, Anne-Marie. <laughs> and she said, we got him. And from there on, I don't even remember the rest of the conversation. It was just so overwhelming. I thought, you know, if it's coming from Anne-Marie, I know that's an official source that actually gave myself permission to, to get excited and to believe it. That's wow. amazing. It was great. <laughs> so who did you, who did you share the news with? I went to the bedroom, woke my husband up <laughs> and that was, that was great. I said, I said, honey, wake up. And he said, yeah. And I said, no, 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 wake up. This is big. And he, he kind of looked up and he, he said, what's going on? And I said, they got him. And he started hooting. He just, oh, yeah. And he sat up and hugged me and, and we laughed and we cried. And, um, and then I called my dad, my dad and my stepmom, they live in Indiana. And so I, I called my dad, even though it was way past his bedtime too, but I knew that he would want to know right away. And then I called my brother in California. And I think he was more shocked than anybody I talked to. I think that he was just, he said, no way. And I said, I said, yeah, I said, I don't have a whole lot of details yet, but I gave him the, the press conference information for the following day. And I think he was just stunned. He just kept saying, whoa, no way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but, you know, let me ask you, what was your first thought when D.A. Schubert tells you on the phone that they've made an arrest in the case? I think my first thought was, thank you, Lord. I, I don't know. I've always believed that the truth would come out when it was supposed to come out, how it was supposed to come out. And I think that a lot of times, you know, we all get impatient. We want to know everything right, right now. We want to know everything at, on our time frame. And I've just always believed that there's a creator that, that loves us and he knows everything and he gives us the right information at the time that we're supposed to have it. And, you know, we've been so anxious for that for so long that it was just a huge relief. I was just so grateful. 
so grateful. What was it like for you to see um, Joseph D'Angelo, uh, who stands accused of killing your mom? That was really bizarre. Watching the press conference that day, it seemed like they talked and talked and talked for a long time before they ever moved the camera over to a picture of him. So I was kind of apprehensive about that. I kept kind of, I was listening intently, but at the same time, I kept saying, well, when are they going to show us who this suspect is, you know? Mm -hmm. And then seeing his face, I think my first impression was just, I don't know. I just looked at him and I went, man, he just kind of looks pathetic. And I guess that's what I, what I would have expected. So I think I would have been surprised if he was, was, you know, young and or fit or handsome or any of this, you know, I think when I looked at him and I just saw this kind of frumpy old man, I just thought, yeah, that's, that looks about right. And do you have anything uh, to say to him or ask him? You know, that's kind of a work in progress. One of the things on my on my to-do list is a victim impact statement for sentencing if and when that day ever comes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in a process right now of just trying to organize my thoughts and to pray and to finally figure out what there is worth saying to him. I'm not sure I want to expend a whole lot of breath or effort or any kind of real investment in him per se. My mind tends to to reel when I think about when I think about him, when I think about the decisions that he made in his life that led him to do the horrendous things that he did. And I don't know what made him the way it was. But what I do know is that he took great effort to go undetected and to hurt, I mean viciously hurt so many people. The punishment that he deserves is far greater than anything he's gonna get here on earth. So, you know what, no matter what a judge or a jury decides, it's not going to be bad enough for what he deserves. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and again, it's also still part of the process, right? I mean, we're coming up close to the to year anniversary, yeah. I guess, of the arrest. But when you think about it, you've been you've been living with this for much longer than a year. So it makes sense that it's still very much a process. Yeah, it's just huge. And I, you know, if I, if I ever had the chance to sit down with him face to face, I really don't know that I'd be able to come up with any words. I really don't. Yeah. What are your plans for the upcoming trial? Do you know if you'll be asked to testify? Is that part of, will you be able to watch or will you have to sit outside? I haven't been told anything specific as far as I know, I don't have any relevant testimony because I I wasn't present. I didn't discover the bodies. I don't have any real contribution evidence-wise or testimony-wise for the case itself. So I'm, I'm hoping that that means that I will be afforded the opportunity to, to watch. And of course, that, that in itself is just, it's one of those like daunting it's almost scary. I mean, not that there's any physical fear from him anymore, but just the idea of sitting through the courtroom and listening to the details. I don't know. I'm apprehensive. And at the same time, there's a part of me that just doesn't want to miss a minute of it, you know? Yeah. No, I, I get <laughs> I get the not wanting to miss a minute. And I think also, you know, I think the magnitude of, of, like you said, of having to hear all the details, many of which, you know, probably haven't even been shared uh, publicly, or maybe not even with you, 
that that's a lot. And also the magnitude of the case. Um, I mean, this man stands accused of 13 homicides and another 13 kidnapped to robbery charges. Like that's that's it's going to be I feel like the accumulation of all the evidence that will be presented, that that's a heavy, heavy weight. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's part of me that just wishes that he would please so that we don't have to go through all that. And then there's another part of me that says, wait a minute, don't deprive us of that. We deserve that. As painful as it might be, we deserve to have that day. We deserve to have every single act that he has committed put into public record. I mean, we we deserve that. The victims and survivors, we deserve that process to go through all of those horrific details. So would I love for him to just plea and have it sentenced and, and lock lock the door and throw away the key. I would love for that to happen. But at the same time, I feel like we deserve the process to run its course. Right. Can you talk about the bond you formed with, you know, not just the other family members of the murdered victims, but also the rape survivors and all of this? You know, that's one of my favorite subjects because these women have become the sisters that I never had. I'm the oldest child in my family. I've got a brother and two stepbrothers. And so I never had a sister. And losing my mom so early, mom and I were actually, I don't want to say more friends than mother and daughter, but she was very relatable to me as a young person. And so a lot of times, you know, we would shop and do things together and we, and people would think we were sisters. So uh, we kind of had that, that intimacy. And um, with, with Jane and Margaret and Shelly and some of the other uh, women that I've just started to get to know, they have filled up holes in my heart that I didn't really realize existed. And it's made my life really, really rich. So there've been a, a lot of rewards on this journey. And the timing has been such that in the same time that I was getting stronger and rebuilding my life, the case was getting stronger and the truth was starting to come together. So mm-hmm. this, this past year in my life has been really, really phenomenal, not just because of the case, but because of, where I've been able to come personally. What a great parallel. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't buy into this whole Jesus thing, but I just really do believe that that the Lord has plans and that he works them out in his way. And my life is living proof of that. Wow. Well, Debbie, you've been such a great advocate for this case. Again, keeping it in the news, keeping the pressure on all these years. And thank you so much for everything you've done and for being here today and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys have been huge contributors to everything that's gone on. So I'm just super excited for what you have done and what you are doing. I'm just really excited. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Margaret Wardlow was the youngest victim of the East Area Rapist. She was just 13 years old when he attacked her in November of 1977. She shares her story and a few words she has for suspect Joseph James D'Angelo. Please welcome Margaret, also known as East Area Rapist Victim Number 27. Hi, Margaret. Hi there. So, Margaret, you have a very interesting story. Um, you were very young when you were attacked by the East Area Rapist and actually stood up to him. Can you tell us quickly what you remember from that interaction? I just remember being walking very early in the morning and just thinking that somebody was playing a joke on me and then realizing once I looked at the clock that it was probably not the neighbor that I thought it was. It was 
probably the most likely the East Area Rapist. Just because it was about 2.30 in the morning, I looked over at the clock, and then I realized the time that it was, it was just no way that there was someone there that was, you know, playing a joke or something. So I had initially refused to, like, let this person tie me up. He had asked to tie me up initially and um, that I should roll over, and I just said no thinking that it was the neighbor maybe playing a joke on me to wake me up for school that day. Yeah, and you actually were aware of the East Area Rapist. I mean, being um, attack victim 27, obviously it's been hitting the media a lot and in, and in the news. So what did you know already at the time? Because you were also still very young. I was very young, but at the same time, my mom really didn't like shelter me a lot. I read the newspaper. We I think we got the like, afternoon paper. And everything that was written, anything and everything that was written about this guy, I always read the paper and I read, you know, every single detail. And I knew quite a bit by the time being victim number 27, I knew quite a bit about this guy, at least, you know, what they were willing to disclose in the newspaper about him. So I was really perplexed as to why, why was this person attacking all these women? And, you know, what was the reason behind it? And what kind of a person does this? And it was really, I was just really into like crime and stuff like that. And I, I was very curious about um, who would be doing these types of crimes. And also, of course, why can't they catch him? Right. And so when you realized it was probably him attacking you, you must have had a different perspective than others in the sense that you had read so much about him. Do you feel like that is what helped you be defiant to him? Um, or what do you feel like was driving your pushing back on him? Well, initially, I knew for sure that he hadn't hurt anyone. He hadn't killed anyone. And I also knew that he really got off on frightening his victims and really having power over his victims through fear. And so I was just thinking on my feet and I thought, like, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of seeing me frightened or seeing me scared. And I knew, like, I just knew for sure he was not going to hurt me and I was not going to die, even though he was threatening to kill me and kill my mom. I just... I knew he wasn't going to do that. Just, you know, when you're younger, you don't you don't have the fears that you that you should have rationally. And so I just thought, I'm not going to let this guy get the best of me. And that's, you know, I felt like I kind of knew a little bit about him because of everything that I had read. Yeah, that's amazing, amazing fortitude for a teenager. I mean, I, I can't imagine how terrifying the situation must have been. And it's, I mean, it says a lot about you that at that age you were able to think on your feet, you know, and, and, and not make it easy on him, which is amazing. Yeah, thank you. I um, When this case got brought up again at the 40th anniversary and I had been asked to tell my, a little bit about my story, I really kind of questioned myself and thought, was I really as brave as I remember myself being? Or is this just kind of maybe a, a fabricated in my mind that I was just so tough because this is how I've learned how to protect myself or deal with what happened to me? But it was really cool being able to talk to uh, someone like uh, Carol Daly and some of the other detectives and you know, just asked her, you know, like, what kind of kid was I? What what was I like? And she just said, you were just so rare. And that was the word that she used. It just brought tears to my eyes. She said, you were just so rare. And you were just, it was just amazing how I was, you know, I had been paying attention to these articles and there was a reason behind it. I'm not a religious person necessarily, but there was, it must have been an angel on my shoulder just telling me, hey, pay attention to what you're reading because you're going to need to have some insight into the mind of this person that's going to come to your room in the middle of the night and attack you. Do you believe that defiance helped you cope with the aftermath of the assault as well? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I've had a chance to kind of explore it, you know, since it happened and most recently since the 40th anniversary of, of all the attacks. And this was prior to um, the arrest of Mr. D'Angelo. And I think in a lot of ways, I had a lot of adults around me that were just having a very difficult time coping with what had happened to me and what had happened to my mother. Of course, my mother was there during the attack also. She was tied up and had plates put on her back, and she wasn't raped, but she had a very difficult time, you know, handling it, as any mother would, you know, you want to protect your child. Mm -hmm. Any parent would want to protect their child, and she couldn't really do that. And I think what had happened was I just had to take the reins and say, to everyone, hey, listen, life has to go on. We can't be mulling this over forever. And I just couldn't stand being like in the midst of all these people that were so sad and just devastated as to what had happened to me. And I just, I knew somebody had to pick up the pieces and move on. And I think in a lot of ways, I did that and I had to do that on my own because everyone around me was just so devastated. You know, it's really sad when I think about that aspect of it. I think that there's a reason that I just had to become that strong person, and that was because the adults that, that normally a child would depend upon in that sort of a situation, they just weren't there for me. They were just helpless. So I just didn't want to fall into that big pit that I saw everyone falling into. That's amazing. And that really is a testament to your strength. Well, it's interesting even because you're talking about obviously the assault happened to you, but talking about the other adults in your life and your brothers even being impacted by what happened to you. I think oftentimes, you know, people forget that the victims and the people that this impacted, you know, far outweigh the people who actually had physical contact with the serial rapist, third of Golden State Killer. Yeah. And 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 the people that did, and even the people that didn't um, have a firsthand experience of it, that were lived in fear. You couldn't really live your life because you knew this guy was out there. Right. So yeah, no, it's it was a really horrible time um, in Sacramento when when all that took place, and uh, yeah, everyone was kind of held hostage. So over the years, as you know, like you said, this forty years had passed, and and even you know a year ago, did you? Did you ever believe that we'd get answers in this case? You know, I know in 2016, with the 40th anniversary, there was a lot more attention brought back to it. But did you believe it would happen? Or is it was it more like, well, hopefully somebody can give me some answers? Well, years ago, I just had to let it go and say, you know what, it's okay. If they never catch him, I'm okay with that. That's all right with me. And that's kind of how I, I let it go for myself. But then once I was introduced to who I call my sister survivors, Jane Carson Sandler, um, Michelle Cruz, and Debbie Domingo. Once I met these ladies, I all of a sudden had a renewed interest in who's going to find this guy and how are we going to find him. And I really, really knew that he had to be caught for the things that he did to other people, not just myself, but people that really suffered. You know, losing a family member is just so far beyond what I experienced. I can't imagine if my mom would have been killed or something like that. I would go to the ends of the earth to find out who did this and make them pay for it. Mm -hmm. So once I met other victims and obviously the family members of the murder victims, that was just so moving to me. And I had a renewed interest in hoping that he would be found and then also, um, also thinking that there was a possibility and also thinking that I also thought in the back of my mind, this guy is so emboldened. He might just be there in Sacramento when 
they do find him or if they should find him. And sure enough, that's right where he was. He would just have the nerve to just be living right there where he committed so many crimes, you know. So, so it was interesting. And it was a huge relief once the arrest happened. Where were you and how did you find out that he'd, he'd been caught? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, I'm here in San Diego. I'm at the Hyatt Hotel and I was exactly here. Um, I got a phone call from a detective that I'd never met. I'd never heard his name or anything. He called me in the evening and he called a couple times. And I just didn't make it over to my phone. I heard the phone ringing and sitting there watching TV and Eventually, I went over to the phone and saw it was a 916 number, so I called it back. And uh, it's this detective that my family had kind of grown up with, at least my brothers had grown up with this kid that lived down the street. And um, I was just a baby at the time. I was about one. And so I didn't know him, but he had grown up with my brothers. And he said, you know, you don't know me, but I want to tell you I'm, I'm retired as sheriff detective. And I have been wanting to make this phone call forever. And I got your phone number from... I think Richard Shelby, and I I told him, you know, I had to talk to you about something or whatever. I don't know how he got my number, but he called me and said, I just wanted to be the person to tell you um, we have the East Area Rapist in custody, and he's at the Sacramento County Jail right now, and he's being questioned, and I couldn't believe it. It was just amazing. It was like, a, you know, surreal. Really surreal. So how did your family take it? Because you mentioned how, you know, you were the young child who was like, okay, we, we got to move on. And the adults were, were not handling it so well. How did the adults take the news that, you know, the arrest was made? Well, my brother just couldn't believe it. He was just amazed, you know, and I just, just astonishment, you know. Were you able to share the news with your mom? I've told her. My mom has dementia. She's 98 years old. And I've told her. You know, I, I tell her all the time. I'm always telling her, you know, you know, we caught these rapists, and she smiles, you know, but I don't know how much of that she processes. Right. I've showed her, um, I've shown her the um, newspaper articles and all kinds of things like that, and TV shows and, and all the things that have come out about the cases, but I don't know. I mean, I, I like I said, I was going to tell her for 40 days in a row, you know, right. just remind her. Now, it had been a long time since this happened. What was it like for you to see Joseph D'Angelo, who stands accused of being your rapist? Well, obviously he doesn't look anything like the um, the composites that were drawn. However, there's one that he does look quite a bit like. But, you know, when he was a younger guy and he was a, a sheriff, I think up in Auburn, you know, he looks very much like the one composite. But the other two he doesn't look anything like. And I was always concerned that, hey, this guy's, you know, an older man. He's not going to look anything like these composites that we have. And we don't really have anything age-generated that shows, like, his how he would have aged or anything. So I always thought that that was going to be tough to try and find him that, you know, by looking at a composite. And really the only way that we were going to get him was going to be through DNA, and most likely familial DNA. Thinking, I was thinking maybe his son might be arrested or his daughter might be arrested for a felony and then they would take the DNA and then they would see that that child is a close match to him or a brother or, or whomever that was related to him. All it would take is for that DNA to be put into the system and then we would know that the family member is most likely our Easter rapist or Golden State killer. But it's interesting how Paul Holes worked it the other way and I know that there were other people that worked on it but Kind of work. They worked it the opposite way. Right. You went to the arraignment. You went to one of the court hearings. 
I did not go to the first arraignment. I didn't go to that, but I have been to all the other hearings since then. And what, what's it like being in the same room with him? Um, it was really hard the first time. I mean, well, once they once they arrested him, I thought initially, oh, I'd love to go talk to him. I'd love to ask him any questions. You know, I, I had all these wild visions running through my head. But when I went into the courthouse and I went into the hearing, the first hearing that I went to, it was just frightening. It was scary. It, and it was scary leading, you know, like an hour leading up to going there. It was, I was just frightened. I was afraid. And then I felt almost like I was, you know, 13 again, looking at this guy. I could only see the back of his, his neck and his head because he doesn't, he won't look at us. He doesn't turn around. He just looks forward. So you can only see the back of him or maybe the side of him a little bit. And his attorneys really protect him. They stand next to him. So you can't really get a good look at him. But all I could see was the back of his neck and he has all these deep wrinkles. And I'm thinking, this guy's been out fishing and riding his motorcycle you know, living the life of Riley this whole time, and he should have been paying for these crimes. I mean, I, that was really, that was a thought that really, I felt very strongly, like, this guy's got wrinkles on the back of his neck because he's been out in the sun, just enjoying his life, while, you know, everybody's been suffering. So that, that was hard. That was really tough seeing him the first time. It's gotten easier over time, but it's never easy. Right. You said it was scary at first. What were you afraid of? I don't know. I was afraid. I was just afraid. I mean, and, and I would never want to talk to him or have any kind of conversation or any kind of uh, a correspondence or anything like that. Like I initially thought that I might want. I don't want to have anything to do with with him like that. But for some reason, I just initially I thought that, that that's what I wanted to do. Now, I guess it just it's like being a kid again. I was just afraid. I was maybe the those fears that I should have had originally and should have been legitimate fears that I didn't have at 13, they've come now to be really, you know, fear him and be afraid of him like I should have been. But I, I wasn't that afraid. I just knew I was going to be okay. And I was going to try to be as sassy as I could possibly be. Um, how about his evolution in the courtroom from, you know, f- the first appearance was in that wheelchair that was all over the media. And then his last appearance in December, he was... He was quite skinny already. Do you have any observations on on that? Well, he's lost a lot of weight. He continues to lose weight every time I see him. He he continues to lose more and more weight. I got a phone call from Paul Holmes, and the day that they made the announcement that they arrested him, and he said, "Hey, listen, this guy's seventy two years old, but he's you know he's got the physique of a fifty year old. He's out riding his motorcycle, I guess, a hundred miles an hour." about a week before his arrest, start doing all his, his own yard work. He's fishing. He's, you know, he's very active. So it was a big kind of a, maybe a shirt that he put on, but also he could have been, you know, heavily sedated too because he's got a bad temper, I guess. So they may have given him some medication to just, you know, mellow him out. So he had to be in a wheelchair. So, you know, it could have been an act like a lot of people think, but it also could have been just sedation. He could have just been heavily sedated. Do you feel like as he's getting skinnier, he looks angrier or he you know it's just um i know one of the victims said that in the beginning he just seemed you know more like a grandpa you would see down the street and and as he's starting to lose weight you, there's you really see that rage on his face well i think he's a sad old man and i mean he, he never ever expected to be arrested i'm sure you know and uh i don't know i mean i i, I think that 
we may never, ever really have all the answers to the questions that we have. There's a lot of people that would like to have those answers and that, you know, are banking on getting answers. But I think that there's going to be a lot of unanswered questions. And I think there may be some things that he did, or many things that he did that he doesn't even know the, the reason that he did them or what was underneath all of this. But certainly it's rage, obviously, but and anger and hatred and, you know, uncontrollable impulses. But I, I think that there's going to be a lot of unanswered questions. Even if you tried to answer all the questions, I don't think that we would really be satisfied with with what we come up with, you know, or what he could come up with. Right, which, which brings up a great point, Margaret. I wanted to ask you, what are your plans for the upcoming trial, and will you be asked to testify? Well, we'll see. I'm, not, I'm probably not going to be asked to testify because the statute of limitations on my attack, even though I was a minor who was 13 years old, they expired after 10 years. So, you know, with rape, I guess you have a 10-year statute, and then after that, you know, it doesn't count. So my understanding is that I probably won't be asked to testify, and I plan on being there for the trial. I've got family in Sacramento still, so I would like to be there. Um, you talked a little bit about, uh, obviously, your sister survivors, whom we know well. Um, but ha- have you started forming a bond with some of these other survivors that, that you've met now since the arrest? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and especially there's one particular friend of mine who's like close to my age and was close to uh, my age when, during her attack. We've become really close. And, you know, it's, we've been able to help each other. It's been, it's been quite a journey. It really has been, I would say, a huge journey, like a place that I never expected to find myself. Had you asked me, you know, three years ago, you know, can you ever possibly imagine that all this has transpired and you've met so many wonderful people and made so many great connections? I could have never dreamed such a a wonderful relationships that I have and, you know, all the things that have have come my way. It's It's been good. For the most part, it's really been good. So after all these years, what do you think is the one thing that you are taking away from this? I would say my all the, the wonderful people that I've met through this process, the other victims, certainly the detectives are incredible people. You know, they made a huge impact on my life, especially Carol Daly. She's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And it's nice being able to thank her for the things that she did for me. And, and you know, after so many years, I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to do that. And so it's been cool. It's been it's been really neat having these other women, too, that have experienced things. And there's men also that I've met that have been through this, this same sort of attack, too. And also and also the justice. I mean, I think there's going to be justice. I, I want to see him have a fair trial. I think it's tough because everyone wants to know about the case and they want us to tell our stories. And, you know, we're sure we got the guy because of the DNA, but he needs to have a fair trial, obviously. You know, a lot of people say very um, vindictive, mean things that they want to do to this guy. But really, the right thing is that he should have his day in court and that, you know, he has a a fair, honest trial. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story today and, you know, for sharing your story on our show and keeping keeping the word out there and uh, supporting those sister survivors. We are in awe of everything you guys have done. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for for having us. And thank you for um, giving us a platform to tell our story and to hopefully encourage other people. And, 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 And one last thing I'd like to say is no matter how cold your case has become, you know, how little hope you have of finding your perpetrator who's done whatever crime, 
you know, there's always hope because look at our case after 40 plus years, you know, we've got our guy, you know, hopefully we've got the right guy, but, uh, you know, it looks like we've, we've got a pretty good suspect, you know, so, um, I'm, I'm excited to tell other people that, you know, never give up hope because there's always hope that you can solve the crime and, and have justice. Unmasking a Killer supervising producer Todd Lindsay and Sun Gazette publisher Reggie Ellis and editor-in-chief Paul Myers return next week to offer details surrounding two separate murder cases in the Visalia area from the mid-1970s that some believe may also be the work of the Golden State Killer. We're discussing the Jennifer R. Moore and Donna Richmond murders. Oscar Clifton has been tried and convicted in the Donna Richmond case. Jennifer R. Moore's case remains open and unsolved. So listen and subscribe to the Unmasking a Killer podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series is available on demand at CNN Go. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joke Finciun. Thanks for listening.